Welcome to the Wonder of It All podcast, where we are learning how to live in the sacredness of wonder. Thank you for listening. My name is Angela, and here's your host, my dad, Ben Brewster. Take it away, Dad. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Another episode, another week, and this week we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. March 17th, that's Wednesday. So if you have Irish lineage or descent, uh, it's a great day to celebrate. If you don't know why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day, uh, do some research. Uh, Patrick was a pretty amazing person uh, who really helped bring the Christian faith to Ireland. So check out some history and understand kind of the why behind the day and why this is so important. So along those lines of St. Patrick's Day in Ireland, I thought, hmm, is there somebody that that we could talk about related to the American Restoration Movement that had Irish connections? And the name that immediately came to mind is James O'Kelly. And we don't know a whole lot about his early life, but for today's episode, we're going to talk about this guy named James O'Kelly, who was regarded as a passionate preacher, an inspiring preacher, and a guy who really adopted a viewpoint of wanting to strip away all the things that made religion complicated, all the creeds and confessions of faith and the the hierarchical structure, uh, and, and wanted to really just be a Christian. And as noble as that pursuit was, O'Kelly reminds us of how difficult it is to continue that pursuit, especially when we encounter people who have different opinions and interpretations than we do. So today, the topic is James O. Kelly, most likely born in Ireland, although the, 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 the history is scant. The records are hard to find uh, to confirm with absolute certainty that he was born in Ireland. Uh, some historians say he might have been born in the Virginia colony in the States, but around the year 1735, and O'Kelly would live until 1826. Uh, he, in, eight, in 1759, met a girl named Elizabeth Meeks, and, and they were married that year, and they had two sons, John, who became a farmer, and William, who served in the North Carolina legislature. O'Kelly, though, in 1775, uh, began preaching for the Methodists, and he was ordained as a Methodist minister in December 24, 1784. You remember the Methodists were connected with John Wesley, so this is, is going to the Church of England, and, and the Methodists, in, in planting uh, their flag, so to speak, on American soil, uh, used a technique back in that time called circuit riding preachers. And preachers would be appointed to ride horseback to various towns and areas and to preach about Jesus. And, and this seems to be what O'Kelly did. And he was, uh, from every uh, record that we can find, was very good at what he did. Uh, he served, uh, after being ordained in 1784, he then served for eight years as the presiding elder of the Southern Virginia area. And so during this time of circuit riding preachers, 
there was there had to be somebody who would appoint these these preachers, tell them, okay, you're going to go here, you're going to go here. And so that person was Francis Asbury. You might call him uh, the head of the Methodist Church in America at this time, the superintendent, the bishop. There are various terms used uh, to describe uh, Asbury. Uh, but he was the one that was in control. Well, O'Kelly wanted there to be an appeal process. If a circuit-riding preacher was given an assignment that he did not think was good or, or that he preferred another one, is there any way to appeal the decision that was made? Well, that caused a little bit of fear. <laughs> fear. I can't, I can't speak very well. Uh, in the ranks of the, the Methodist Church at this particular time, particularly it put O'Kelly at odds with Asbury. And there would be this huge fallout that would forever change the American religious landscape. The argument between O'Kelly and Asbury took place at the General Convention of the Methodists in 1792 in Baltimore, and it lasted for three days of the conference. O'Kelly appealed that, that, that there needed to be a way that, that ministers could appeal the assignments that they were received by Asbury, that, that he shouldn't have all this power to do as he pleased without some sort of mechanism in place to, to balance that power. The debate was fierce. It was furious. And at one point in his arguments, O'Kelly stood up before all those in the convention, and he had a New Testament in his hand. And he pleaded with these words, Brethren, hearken unto me. Put away all other books and forms, and let this be the only criterion, and that will satisfy me. In this moment, while uh, debating with Asbury over who has the authority to do what and, and what kind of process is in place for ministers to appeal assignments and, and what can ministers do, what are the rights of ministers, is what this seemed to boil down to. O'Kelly calls everyone in attendance. Let's just go back to the New Testament. Let's do away with, with all these mechanisms and these tools. Let's, let's do away with these forms and that we have established. All that were at some point established, every, every denomination does this. We establish things that we hope will help people to follow Jesus. And sometimes what we establish becomes oppressive and burdensome. And, and that's how O'Kelly felt that the Methodist church was trending at this point. So he makes this drastic, emotional, dramatic plea to the general convention in 1792, holding up that New Testament and calling everybody to put all other things away, all other books or writings that are held up as authority and just go back to the New Testament as the only authority for the church. Well, not everybody was impressed by O'Kelly's uh, call to primitive Christianity. One Methodist minister in attendance replied, the scripture is by no means a sufficient form of government.
Well, the fallout sent shockwaves through the Methodists in the States. Uh, One biographer of Asbury mentions that 10,000 Methodists joined O'Kelly in the group that he led, which formally left the Methodists by the end of 1793. It was on December 25th of 1793 that James O'Kelly and his followers formed what became known as the Republican Methodist Church. In August of 1794, a committee of seven men were formed for the purpose of further organizing the Republican Methodist Church and hopefully not repeating the mistakes of the past. And as they discussed what their official name should be, one man in attendance, Rice Haggard, stood before the group, again with a Bible, and said, Brethren, this is a sufficient rule of faith and practice, and by it we are told that the disciples were called Christians, and I move that henceforth and forever the followers of Christ be known as Christians simply. The vote was unanimous. All concurred with Haggard's recommendation. And then a second vote was taken to adopt the Bible as their only creed. They would henceforth be known as Christians only, and their only authority would be the Bible. Following the unanimous vote to go by the name Christian only and the secondary and the second vote to adopt the Bible as their only creed, the group then adopted what they called six cardinal principles of the Christian church. Number one, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. Number two, the name Christian should be used to the exclusion of of all party and sectarian names. Number three, the Holy Bible or scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is our only creed and a sufficient rule of faith and practice. Number four, Christian character is the only test of church fellowship and membership. Number five, The right of private judgment and the liberty of conscience are the privilege and duty of all. And number six, the union of all followers of Christ to the end that the world may believe. So when we unpack these six principles, the cardinal principles that, as they called them of the Christian church, Right off the bat, they assert that the church only has one head, and that's Jesus. And And some historians think that this may have been O'Kelly taking a swipe at Asbury and the Methodists. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's, it's a reminder of who the ultimate authority is. Now, when we get into practical decisions, we, we know that people have to be in positions of authority to make decisions as regards as regard to the church. But it's important to remember that that Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, you look at the second one. Uh, they were going to do away with names and simply be called Christian. 
And, and, and what we see is, is with our names, why they can be helpful in identifying a certain brand of Christianity. They also remind us of the divisions that are in place among Christians. Uh, when we use uh, attached names like Methodist or Baptist or Lutheran or um, Catholic or Nazarene, uh, or Pentecostal, uh, even when we use Church of Christ as a particular ne- brand name, uh, we're reminding people of divisions that have taken place uh, that still are in place today. And so, what this group said, let's just let's just be called Christians. And of course, they're going back to uh, the Bible in Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-six, where we read that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And so they said, this is going to be the only name that we want to promote and the only name by which we want to be known. Number three, the Bible is it. The Bible is their only creed. The Bible is going to be their go-to for how they practice their faith. Uh, Number four, fascinating one. Uh, The only test of church fellowship and membership is Christian character. Notice it. They don't mention baptism. They don't mention the way worship styles. They don't mention um, the, the different uh, beliefs and interpretations that people ha- may have about different passages in the Bible or certain methodologies uh, that different groups espouse. It, the test is Christian character. We might today call it the, the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, number five is a big one that will continue uh to, to be found throughout groups, uh, particularly in the American Restoration Movement. Uh, everybody has a right to private judgment. Everybody has a right to liberty of conscience. That's not only our privilege, but it's our duty as well, because we all have to interpret the Bible, and we have the right to make private judgments. Now, what we're going to see come out of this is a, a second belief right up there with it that we are not allowed to make our private judgments laws for other people. And then the last one, the union of all followers of Christ to the end that the the world may believe. They wanted everybody who followed Jesus to be united. And so they felt like, look, we're going to have to take these steps to see that this becomes a reality. But making that become a reality is a lot harder than it sounds. One of the the big challenges that came to O'Kelly's vision for Christian unity came in the form of a man named William Guyry. He was born in the Philadelphia area in 1773. He was converted to Jesus and became a Methodist in 1778. And about four years later, he began preaching, though he was not considered as an ordained minister. In 1794, he had traveled to Jamaica, and he converted about 60 people within a few weeks. But he got crosswise with the Anglican authorities, and he was arrested, imprisoned, and sent back to the United States. In 1795, he became a member of the Methodist Conference, and he traveled throughout Virginia, which was the territory where O'Kelly also traveled. And by 1797, the name William Guyrie disappeared from all Methodist records. 
And most historians believe that it was around this time that he began to search for a church that most closely resembled the one he read about in the pages of the New Testament. He had become very disenchanted with the Methodists and was searching for what he felt was the church described in the New Testament. He, during this time, became very concerned with doctrine and church government, concerns that led him to leave the Methodist. But as he looked at the Episcopalians and the Catholics and the Presbyterians and the Baptists in the area, his concerns would not allow him to join any of those groups either. So he began a church that he believed was modeled after the one he read about in the New Testament. He wrote about his struggle in April 14, 1809. What was to be done, he writes, to stand alone was disagreeable, to unite on bad conditions was worse. Thus circumstance I perused the scriptures, and from there gathered a system which I conceived to be correct, after my mind was perfectly satisfied on the subject. A few years later, while in Georgia, he comes into contact with a group of people who simply refer to themselves as Christians. What Guyrie doesn't realize is they are connected with the O'Kelly group. This intrigued Guyrie that they had done away with all other names except for the name Christian. Guyrie met with the leaders of the group, and it became clear that there was only one major disagreement that Guyrie and this congregation had, and that was over baptism. Guyrie was a firm believer in immersion, but the O'Kelly group still practiced infant baptism. Well, Guyrie wanted to still connect with this group, and he was allowed to keep his belief and to share with others who asked him about baptism, but to not cause division. Well, as people began to study with Guyrie and look at the issue of baptism in greater detail, a group of four people reached a decision that they must be baptized on a simple confession of faith, including Guyrie himself, who even though he believed in baptism by immersion, had not yet himself been baptized. So this group of four found a minister who baptized all four of them. And within a short time, more than a hundred members of that congregation that O'Guyrie had identified with were immersed. Now, in Guyrie's example here, we, we learn that it's possible to maintain integrity to the Bible without becoming exclusivistic or judgmental. He didn't compromise. He, he held to his belief, and he shared it when he was given the opportunity. Unfortunately, a conflict would erupt between William Guyrie and James O'Kelly over the subject of baptism, and the two were not able to put their differences aside on this particular matter. And what once began as a promising movement toward Christian unity would again fall victim to division over various interpretations. Even though Guyrie believed that baptism by immersion was the correct response to Christ, he avoided making the matter of test of fellowship. But that would erupt. At the annual Conference of the Christians 
the O'Kelly Group that took place in 1810 at Pine Stake in Orange County, Virginia. The matter of baptism was discussed. Guyrie argued for baptism by immersion, but he also argued for the liberty of conscience. O'Kelly argued against immersion. He argued against making it the only entry into the church. There were 14 leaders in attendance and a vote was taken. Nine preachers voted for liberty of conscience to not make baptism a test of fellowship. Three ministers voted to repudiate the practice of immersion and two ministers remained neutral. O'Kelly himself did not vote for liberty of conscience. Guyrie and those of like mind held up their Bibles in opposition to man-made creeds and articles of faith, calling people to just go back to the Bible. And at one point in the discussion, O'Kelly looked over at Guyrie and said, Who rules this body, you or I? Guyrie replied, Neither of us, brother. Christ rules here. Sadly, no resolution was reached between the two groups. Guyrie's group formed what was called the Virginia Conference, and O'Kelly's established the Old North Carolina Conference. So what lessons do we learn from the O'Kelly and Guyrie conflict? James North, a noted church historian, gives us four. The first one is the difficulties of liberty of conscience. Even though Guyrie and his followers wanted to practice liberty of conscience, they would not accept being dictated to. They were willing to tolerate unscriptural practices on baptism without making them a test of fellowship. But when they were pressured to yield on immersion, baptism by immersion, they refused. A second lesson we learn is the lure of uniformity. So we, we find a, a conference of Christians that gather together with, with identified leaders uh, initially to serve in an advisory role. Now they begin to impose beliefs and practices. O'Kelly tried to use this group as a bully pulpit to pass what he thought was needed. And, and a third lesson we learn here is the selective use of Scripture. In the past, O'Kelly had called people back to the Bible, but in the debate over immersion, he refused to listen when the other group used Scripture as a reference. And, and that leads to a fourth lesson that I think we find here as well, how hard it is to break free from the patterns of the past. Look, when we identify beliefs, we, we root our beliefs in, in Scripture. Every group, Christian group that, that I've been around does this. And, and we become convinced that we have the correct interpretation and, and this is the right way to do things. But when we are unwilling to listen to each other and to consider other viewpoints, then we continue to repeat the mistakes of the past. O'Kelly would never accept immersion as a test of Christian fellowship. He believed in his heart, and he believed the scriptures taught that the only test of Christian fellowship is that of Christian character. Guyrie believed that we are all called 
to be baptized by immersion, but he would not himself make that a test of fellowship. So what it comes down to is the liberty of conscience, the freedom of private judgment. And that sounds really good, but oh, how difficult it is to actually put into practice. Despite the fracture between the O'Kelly group and the Guyry group, some interesting inroads came about through early religious journalism in the States. Elias Smith and Abner Jones, who had called people to just be Christians up in the New England area, their movement had largely been contained to that particular geographical region. But in 1808, Elias Smith began a quarterly. Actually, it was the first religious newspaper in the United States. He called it the Herald of Christian Liberty. Well, copies of it began to be carried with people to other parts of the country. And that initiated correspondence between the northern Christians and the southern Christians. And they began to, to correspond back and forth and find out that they were both advocating the same things, a, a call to be Christians only, to return to the Bible as our only creed. And this led the groups to make an agreement on some foundational matters. They agreed in particular on three doctrinal positions. Number one, Christ is the only head of the church. Number two, the New Testament is the only law of the church. And number three, the name Christian is the only name for Christ's followers. So whatever happened to the O'Kelly group, where did they go in history? Well, in 1931, they merged with the Congregational Church and became known as the Congregational Christian Church. In 1957, this group merged with the Reformed Church to become what is now known as the United Church of Christ. So even though the quest was for unity, we see in O'Kelly the difficulty of practically living in unity with others. And it serves as a stark reminder that while the call to unite all followers of Jesus is what Jesus himself prayed for, that we must be willing to step away from past patterns and behaviors to make this a recognized reality. Thank you for listening today. If the story of James O'Kelly spoke to you, then do some more research. If you want to know more about William Guyrie, dig up some more information about William Guyrie. Their legacy still affects us today, particularly the religious landscape in the United States. But they weren't the only ones. Because meanwhile, over in Kentucky, part of what was considered the frontier, there was also a call to return to primitive Christianity. And the man who would champion this call was named Barton Warren Stone. 
We'll talk about him on a later episode. Thank you again for listening. Have a great week. Keep living in wonder and take care.